Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today my guest is Susan Eldridge. Susan is a musician, entrepreneur, coach, and program designer. In this episode, Susan and I discuss her work with collegiate curriculum transformation, providing more equitable resources to university students, mentoring artists and organizations, and her hopes for collegiate education. You can check out her work at notablevalues.com. Please let us know what you think of this episode. Please like and share it with your friends. And please also make sure you're checking out our website as well. And I will see you next Monday. So hi Cassidy, my name's Susan Eldridge and I'm based in Melbourne, Australia and my work centres around helping musicians to thrive. I love it. So what got you started in music in the first place? Ah, it's a great question. So I come from a a long line of um, like a community-centred um, musicians. So my, I grew up actually playing in a, in a local brass band in a regional town where my dad was um, first trombone behind me and my sister played solo euphonium, two chairs to the left of me and I played first baritone. Um, awesome. we, made up, we made up quite a huge percentage of the band. So yeah, I grew up making music um, in a small regional town in a brass band setting and didn't really have any formal um, musical training on on a brass instrument because that just wasn't there wasn't teachers uh, in the town where I grew up. Mm. So it was more just like community band that sort of thing. Yeah, very much, um, and very much music as service as well. So the bands in in Australia, the brass bands receive funding from the local council, and in return they do lots of concerts in aged care homes. Um, so I grew up with this notion that performing was about serving, servicing and serving and connecting with the audience rather mm-hmm. than performing being um, like for evaluation, say for exams. A lot of people who grow up in the youth orchestra model, um, their idea of performing is it's a, you know, it's a very formal and traditional concert setting. Um, with all of the um, expectations that come from both the performers and the audience, or it's for an examination, you're getting judged and assessed. Um, And that's not the way that music making was for me growing up. It was all about, um, yeah, like doing something to connect to to the audience through music. That's excellent. And I can see how, you know, me reading your bio and a little bit about you, I can see how that has connected into your current work. Let's follow that trajectory a little bit. So what I find really interesting about you is that you are someone who kind of professionally drifted away from music a little bit, but then came back Mm -hmm. to it. I think that's amazing. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, this whole tech enterprise thing you did over in Europe and then your path back to Australia and back to music professionally. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of timeline for yourself? Sure, sure. So um, I think if we back, even if we reverse back a little bit from there, it helps to contextualise it. So having grown up in a regional area with really no formalised or quality music education, I just was pretty good at playing an instrument. I then went and did a college performance degree and all of the people that I was at college with had come through well, pretty much all of them had come through the other model of the youth orchestra model, private um, in Australia. Most people who study um, 
all the undergraduate music degrees are performance degrees. They're not education degrees. So they're all students who've had quite a lot of, um, they probably had weekly private lessons on their instruments since they were, you know, 10. And um, they've had lots of engagement with quality education through the youth orchestras. Um, so that wasn't, that wasn't my, um, that wasn't my story coming into a music degree. So it was pretty challenging not having the same kind of experiences that most of them had. And I struggled um, through, yeah, struggled. Like I basically taught myself to play the French horn from a book, which is a bit like um, <laughs> trying to learn to ride a bicycle by um, reading a book. It's pretty useless. Uh, so look, I, I didn't, academically I was fine, but um, on the instrument, you know, it, it just wasn't there because I didn't know. And I knew um, I was self-funded through my university degree. So I worked a lot to pay my own way. And one of the things I did was work in the um, concerts office at the School of Music and like stage manage and box office manage in the venue. Mm-hmm. So I knew from about third year on that playing was not going to be for me, that I was probably going to be um, doing something that supported the playing to happen because I felt like oh, I'm pretty good at this I've got good skills I can see how my playing expertise is going to help me be good at being you know one of the offstage talent people but um, I mean still to this day it's the same story that the, the, the success models that were shown that young musicians are shown are all about being paid to play um, yeah. so there wasn't any pathway there wasn't anyone to talk to to say hey I don't think playing is going to be right for me I, I want to look at um, some sort of management or administration work um, so I finished my I um, actually failed my first attempt at passing my bachelor of music degree and uh, yeah I was pretty ruined actually by the end of my BMAS degree because I, I knew that the things that I was good at were not valued I couldn't see anybody talking about building a life as um, an administrator or a manager in classical music so I um, actually moved to Europe with my partner at the time who was in tech and um, that partner had had a, a business, I, I got into event management, so I was doing like um, stadium touring. Okay. So I moved to the UK to do that, um, general, be general manager of that business because I was good at, you know, classical musicians were super good at attention to detail. Yeah. Um, we know how to work to a deadline you know, the show goes on, you've got to, you just got to get it, get it done, right? So that was what made me good mm-hmm. at event management was all the stuff from, you know, being a, a player. Um, and my partner at the time had had a, a consultancy business here in Australia that had done really well. And we moved to the UK because I was offered um, a role to general manage the business as well as tour manage. And we could see that there was a gap in the market and I was really burnt out from touring. I really hadn't done any self-care about leaving music classical music or having a different identity so I was like carrying all this baggage about well you just failed right you just failed at this thing um and we could see that there's a gap in the market and I thought I really need to get away from music for a while I know I can manage things so I jumped across we had about six staff at that point when I jumped across to be general manager and then within three years we had 30 staff when we were turning over um you know it was a multi-million dollar business so but all the stuff that I was doing at the time was stuff that I kind of learned how to do from being concerts and stage manager. It was like listening to you, listening to the clients to understand what it is they need, meeting their needs in an efficient way. It's all about relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all that stuff. So 
I didn't tell anyone all that time that I was a musician. I kept it hidden because I felt like a complete failure. So I uh, built that business and we had um, offices in Paris and big global clients. And all the time there was this like little itchy spot on the back of my shoulder about, oh, you know, what happened? Because I'd grown up with music being such an important part of my life and identity. Um, so we sold that business and came back to Australia and I decided to um, see if I could unpack maybe what had happened to me um, and write a different story that I could tell myself and tell other people about my musical artistry, about my voice, that it wasn't the story that I had wasn't just you failed and you had to go do something else, but the story was you just had a challenging time and you made these choices and that's all okay. You know, I needed to reframe it, that it wasn't about failure, but it was about I, I made these choices to do these things. Um, so I decided I hadn't played for 16 years, uh, had nothing to do, had had a completely non-musical life mm -hmm. apart from, you know, um, Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys on the radio in the car. <laughs> I just really completely opted out of having even music for um, like nourishment, psychological and emotional nourishment. I just had to like walk away from the whole thing. So I decided to start playing again and then um, decided to go back. I'm the sort of person who if there's something that I can um, take control of or I need to fix, I'll take the fastest but probably the hardest path to that thing. Um, and so I thought, well, what is the fastest but hardest path? Oh, I could go back to college and do a graduate performance degree. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what I did. Like I was in my early 40s and I hadn't played for 16 years and I had two little children, but I thought I need to go back into that world with the eyes and the experience and the psychological strength and emotional strength that I have now and be able to um, be the driver of my experience rather than being the passenger of an experience that wasn't very good. So that's what I did. Um, yeah, went back to college and like day two realised that actually all of the business stuff that I had done and all of the, ex the experience that I had, the, the kind of terrible experience I had as um, an undergraduate student was driving me towards reforming the experience now mm. um, so that others weren't going to have the same story as me uh so yeah that's what I did so I pitched a model for an accelerator and entrepreneurship program to the school of music and they said yes if you can find the money you can make it happen so that's what I did so uh, yeah built a program for the school of music here in Melbourne that's amazing and I, I love your story because and and I love the analogy you used of being in the driver's seat and not in the passenger seat of whatever experience you're going through in life and being like an active participant and in control of what you're doing and what you're passionate about. And I just love that analogy you brought up, but I also wanted to talk about you had two kids and you went back to graduate school. So what was that experience like for you? Cause I know so many people who have had to do that. They have children like I need to go back to school and they're trying to manage being a parent and going to school at the same time and all the craziness mm -hmm. that happens with that. So how did you manage that time? The look, it's just a case of being organized and, and understanding 
Um, there's this really great book, I don't know if you've read it, called The Art of Possibility by Benjamin Zander. If you haven't read it, highly, highly recommend it and recommend it to anybody listening, where Ben talks about um, we get to do this and the gift we have of being able to make a choice. So you were talking also before about the, you know, the analogy of driver or passenger. It's also about understanding what I can and can't control. Yeah. So I can control that I made a choice to do this and I can control how I'm going to use my time to thrive or I can also control that this is not right for me and exit. That's the other thing. So it was just always about during that time of being um, a graduate student and a parent was just saying, like, I I get to do this. It's a gift. I get to do it. And if it's not working for me, I also get to leave. Um, the thing I found most challenging during that time was, and I don't know what the situation is um, for any of your listeners who might be doing this, but the school was not set up for students that had children or caring responsibilities. Yeah. And so when there was stuff like, you know, mandatory orchestra rehearsals and I had kids with tonsillitis, they didn't have a system to be able to, because it's like, you know, um, required attendance. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, I'd ring them and say, I have sick children and they wouldn't, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> so that was the, that was the, or to say like, do I need a doc? Do I need a medical? Do I have to take my children to the doctor to get a medical certificate to explain my absence because it wasn't me that was sick so that was the that was the hardest thing and I think and my only piece of advice for anybody doing this would be to go and find someone um, who can help you kind of navigate those those sticky things particularly with you if you've got maybe um, parent caring for unwell parents or other family members or children that is going to affect your student journey is to try and find an advocate in the administration who can help you um, when these kind of tricky things that they don't have a precedent or a system for come up. Yeah, that's such a good point that you brought up because, I mean, I'm not a parent right now myself, but I am a full-time teacher who was getting a graduate degree full-time as well. And there's so many, yeah, everybody goes, (laughs) but it's also like what you said, where music school does not make it possible or, you know, doesn't make Mm -hmm. it easy to be able to have multiple facets in your life that you have to take care of. So for me, like being a full-time teacher and getting a graduate degree and my graduate degrees in music education, by the way, it, it was really, really hard to, to balance that, to make sure I got the right credits and that I was at the right classes at the right time. And it was like very hard. And I'm sitting here going, I'm getting the graduate degree in the profession that I'm already in. Why is this so hard for me? <laughs> so I totally get that. There is that like, we need to make music schools more conducive to people that are in all different situations. And I also, Cassidy, I think it's really important that music schools understand that they are structured around privilege. Yeah. Um, I didn't, you know, like I'm a, I'm a, a, a white um, woman of privilege, but I wasn't in a position to be able to pay childcare to get to a rehearsal. And there are others who are even even more so than that of, of I have to work to put food on my table and, and yeah. that's affecting my ability to be at a certain place at a certain time because I can't say no. If I say no to my work shift, I'm going to lose my job and I can't make rent. Um, so there's this whole issue of in, inflexibility built around a model of privilege. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. um, that really needs to be addressed. And also that this, if the schools had a clear vision of this is what a graduate from our school of music looks like, not, not as in physical attributes, but these are, the, these are the characteristics and the behaviours and the mindsets and the attitudes of the kind of graduates that we want as champions of our school, what are the, you know, being values-driven and purpose-driven, then it's going to allow them to say, oh, okay, well, we need to be much more flexible in the way the education is delivered and the way the assessment works so that we can get the candidates coming in. Because at the moment, it, the whole system's kind of, it's built backwards, really. Um, wow. And if they took this much more, what are the competencies? How, how do we want our graduates to use their music to make a difference in the world for others and then therefore what does the student experience need to look like to prepare them to do that it would be built around um, flexibility of delivery um, much more opportunity for students to be able to a student like yeah, so that it's not just the ones of um, privilege who can come through the system yeah, I completely agree. That is such a such a good point, especially I feel like with undergraduate programs, I felt like I was, you know, strapped with classes and rehearsals from like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And that leaves no opportunity for someone who needs to work to put their way through school <laughs> to get that done. So that's that's so true. And I mean, I am obviously a white woman as well. I come from a place of racial privilege as well, but my family did struggle financially but I was in a spot where, you know, I, I was able to get the scholarship that I didn't really have to do that and wasn't put in that situation. But I knew a lot of people that were and they really struggled to get through school in that way because they just couldn't find the time to work. So they were just trying to work literally the entire weekend <laughs> to put themselves through school. And that's really it's really sad. But that is such a good point um, that you brought up as well. The, and the other thing about that, Cassidy, is also that was exactly my story was I had to work like 20 plus hours a week to put, um, you know, to eat, eat, eat and live indoors. Um, and what that meant was my study got done, got crammed into the corners of my schedule, right? And I'm a French horn player. You can't practice the French horn at 10.30 at night if you live in an apartment, <laughs> Right, but no. I could do my academic, but I could do my academic work, or at, you know, eight AM on a Sunday. So what it meant was that the, the gaps that I had available to to get my study done between all of the course requirements and work were weird hours of the day when I couldn't practice. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's a whole other thing. Is that you 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 end up you think well, all like I'll just get some coursework done. I can't practice because it's 10.30 or it's 7 a.m. Um, and that that was also my stories that severely limited my ability to progress on the instrument because I wasn't privileged enough to be able to practice during daylight hours. Yeah, yeah. It's those things that like I feel like people don't have enough conversations about or think about unless it has personally happened to them. And I think that's, any issue that is happening in music schools right now only gets addressed when it has personally happened to the people that are in power, I feel like, mm -hmm. until somebody brings it up. And so you were talking about how pursued music entrepreneurship and you started this program and you started basically an entire program at your school. Can you talk a little bit about, because you were talking about how you, you saw a lot of issues with music schools and how they were run and you wanted to change certain things by establishing your program. So can you talk a little bit about some of the issues you saw and how you were trying to change them by establishing mm -hmm. new norms. 
The biggest issue is in the stories we tell students about what success looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fundamentally the problem, is that the, 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 the signals that we send about what success looks like are completely uh, out of sync with the reality of what being a musician is. Um, And they're also completely like at the school where I was working, um, the stories that they were telling were completely misaligned with their own data about graduate destinations. So they had their research about what students do when they leave, which is not, you know, when a full-time job playing an instrument, playing, playing your, playing your instrument. Um, Yet that is almost entirely the story they tell in all the um, promotional material and all the, all the collateral for prospective students and in who they showcase as guests and in the posters that are around the building and who they showcase as alumni. So yeah. that's fundamentally the problem is that the story we tell of what being a musician, the story that they're telling of what being a musician is, is not true for most people and is also misaligned with their own data about what happens. So that's, and that, that's my story. I mean, all of this comes back to, um, you know, me trying to um, fix what happened to me, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not in a selfish way, but just I'm, dr- I'm driven by, I'm driven by a deep, deep desire to help others avoid the suffering or have better skills when they, when the suffering <laughs> happens, because suffering, suffering's unavoidable. Um, so yeah, that was what I was really bothered about. And also that the people in higher education, like to get a job in higher education, there are boxes to tick, right? And those boxes to tick are also not aligned with the things that are the experience of our music graduates, right? They're all boxes that you tick by staying within the system and following the rules of the system that was set up from a, from a Western European model 200 years ago so um that was really what bothered me so that the thing that I really wanted to do was to um change the culture of the school it's a pretty big aim it's like trying to boil the ocean um but to change the culture of the school so that students could say I am responsible for deciding and defining what success looks like for me Mm -hmm. And also for them to be able to say, I see that all of the posters on the wall are of people who've won jobs playing their instrument. And I understand from the data that that is a very, very, very low statistic so that they could really critically evaluate what was being presented to them and be able to um, understand and articulate their own value these are the skills that I have this is what I'm great at doing this is what success is going to look like for me so that's really what I wanted to do um, with the program and one of the one of the ways I thought about doing that was um, the students who are already here are enrolled in the current kind of culture Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, I can I can offer I can offer stuff for them to hook into that's going to help the ones who want to be helped, but there are there are very very many students in music school who don't want to listen to the truth that being paid to play your instrument will give you a living wage. They don't want to hear it. 
yeah. um, they're enrolled in the fantasy. So it wasn't my job. To, it was, was my job to be empathetic to them, um, but not to try and engage necessarily or service them, um, but to engage and service the ones who were within the school already, who were ready to um, take responsibility for themselves. But mostly the work I did actually was with the, with the pipeline with the incoming pipeline. So I did lots of work in with the feeder schools that, um, that the students come into with the high schools and at kind of open days and information days in talking to students and their parents in a very, coming from a place of abundance and possibility to say music's an awesome thing to study. It's really, it's a great, it's a great gift and it's a wonderful place to build a career in music. And that, that, for very few people means earning a living wage from playing your instrument. Um, what it means for most of us is doing a few different things, all of which pull on our artistry and our training um, to, to cobble together some sort of um, model that works for us. And that really helped. So yeah, that was, the, that was the, the thing that really switched the culture around in one matriculation was serving the ones in the school who, who wanted support and working to ensure that the prospective students um, kind of were aware of what was going on. And then um, in each of, the, each of the first years, working really hard in that first semester with them of first year that they didn't um, get caught up in the fairy tale <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that's so great that you're providing that resource for new students because a lot of the people that I talk to on this podcast are professional musicians. Not all of them are playing in full-time orchestras. I have people from all over. I have people that are freelancing and are chamber musicians and also do all this stuff on the side and do management work and all these things. And yeah, a musician is not just one facet for many mm -hmm. people. The, the people mm -hmm. that end up doing music full-time are either people like me who teach, because that is a, a way in, in you know, the U.S. at least to, you know, make a full-time salary, well, not a great one, but, you know, <laughs> a livable wage, hopefully, or, you know, you're in that top, like, 1% that ends up getting, like, the big symphony orchestra job and ends up doing the thing, but it's very, very few people, mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times when I talk to these individuals that had to pull from different skill sets and are playing in, you know, three or four different ensembles, but they're also doing all this side work, they wish that they had something like you're doing when they were in their undergrad, someone to provide them with support, provide them with resources, provide them with the skills that they're going to need when they leave. The amount of people I've had on here that I've talked about, I wish I learned how to get gigs. I wish I learned how to network. Make a budget. I wish That's the big one. Wish I'd known how yeah. to make a budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How to make a budget. All these management skills that we need in the real world as functioning adults, but music school does not teach us. It's kind of like when my mom complains that we didn't learn how to balance a checkbook or pay our taxes in high school, but I know the Pythagorean theorem, but, or that the, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but then I can't, you know, pay my taxes. It's those things that my mom complains about that are like, these are like life skills that you didn't learn when you were in school. It's the same thing with music school. A lot of us did not learn those management skills that we need in the professional world to be a successful musician. And everybody says that's like the big hole they were missing. And you're providing that for students, which I think is great. It is very frustrating, Cassidy, to know, like in, in North America, you, you've got about 2,000 schools of um, higher education yep. that offer music and less than 10 of 10% of them have a program 
that's centered on professional development. Yep. This is not a new conversation. The College Music Society and um, NAM have papers going back to the late 70s talking about this issue. So this is not a new problem. So my question is, why are they not acting? Mm. And I think um, there's a, there's a couple of, there are some schools who have incredible programs and some really amazing deans of schools of music, very visionary. Um, Brian Pertle at Lawrence University is one. Um, uh, um, over at Shannon Joa, all incredible leadership. And they actually wrote, and they do, they have really reformed what is this, what is the journey through their school of music for? And what are the um, values, skills, and competencies that we want our graduates to be able to have when they leave? Not yeah. how good can you replicate something? Because that's currently what the experience is. But the, the, the big problem is the leadership are not engaged in the, the leadership is so disengaged from the world in which their graduates work in is one yes. problem and the the things that you particularly in music um to get a job say or, or any discipline I'm not going to pick on music I'm going to say maybe it's dance and other disciplines are the same but if you are the cello teacher um you're really good at playing the cello and you probably were like the the half a percent right so you've probably never struggled to get a gig because you were the top student all the way through so you don't understand you just don't understand um and for the leadership is there is not a box in higher education when you do your um your yearly review or your triennial performance review there is no box that says burnt the system down and rebuilt it to make a better one (laughs) um there is no push there's no there's no push on them in terms of their employment and performance assessment to reconfigure the curriculum to better fit the needs of graduates. Yeah. So this is not, it's not a new problem. It's a problem that's like 40 years old now mm. and a problem that has, that has had papers being written about it for 40 years. Um, and still we have only less than 10% of schools opting to make a change. Yeah, so I the mean, problem, the, the, pro- the problem is the, the, yeah, the problem is the people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I think the people that end up getting those, those real world training opportunities in that program are the people that end up being arts management majors. Mm-hmm. Everybody else does not receive that. And I think the people that we're talking about here, I think their argument as to why they're not doing it is because they think that you know, there isn't enough time in a music student's day or blah, blah, blah. We need to, you know, we need to teach them all these different things and they need to be performing as much as possible and all these things. But there needs to be an opportunity for students to take classes. And it has to be a class. It can't be like things that kids have to pay for extra because that's when the conversation of privilege comes back in. Um, It needs to be a part of the coursework to graduate it can't be like oh you need to pay this extra few thousand dollars to take this class that's going to be really helpful to you but then only the kids with privilege are going to be able to take it so Mm -hmm. that needs to be the conversation of how are we adjusting our curriculum for 
collegiate students. How are we going to benefit them the most when they graduate? Not us, not the reputation of our school, but our students first, not, oh, we need to be the number one school in this, this, and this. No, we need to prepare our students for the real world and to be successful musicians. Like you said, like not highlighting the same students over and over again, but I don't get it either because honestly, if if we did things like that, there'd be more students that were successful and then the school would have more people to brag about, but <laughs> I don't get and it. It's, yeah, it's not even, Cassidy, a matter of, um, I totally am on the same page with the with the excuse of there's, of there's not enough hours in the day and they're already doing too much. Um, every, every decision comes at the expense of 99. Every choice comes at the expense of 99 other choices, which yeah. are 98 of which are probably pretty similar in outcome. So it's just a case of priority, right? And they don't need, like I, I personally am a, am a big fan of, of curricular overhaul because the thing that musicians need to be able to do more than anything else, and it doesn't matter what they do when they leave, is play well with others. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't mean that as on the instrument, I mean as being able to um, engage with other humans in a meaningful way, right? So if they actually, um, you know, and so much of a music student's life is centred around themselves, it's a universe of one, Mm -hmm. they live in a world of one. Um, So, you know, I'm a fan of kind of completely rethinking the experience of the four years of a college degree to build these different set of competencies. But if they don't want to do that, the easy way they could do that is say to every teacher in the School of Music, how are you demonstrating that you are embedding a conversation and some skills around employability and futures in your subject syllabus? That's not hard because music history, you just say, okay, as part of your assessment on Bach, you have to have a look at Bach's business model and figure out how he earned his money, right? Mm. As part of your world music program, um, whoever it is, how do musicians in Ghana, how do they, what what does being a musician in Ghana look like? How do they earn their money? So you could easily, in, in all, there's no reason why the conversation about employability and a requirement requirement to do some research around employability and graduate outcomes can't be embedded in everything they're currently doing yeah and and not even just like about making money I would have loved to like learn how you know interview tips and go through like mock interviews and Mm -hmm. here's let's work on your resume let's figure out how we need to come to my you need to come do my courses, um, yes. <laughs> Cassidy, because this is exactly what it's all about. And because I still teach, so I don't, I don't work at the school in the same way anymore. I, I, um, the the fit, the fit was not right. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't stay. Um, but the curriculum that I've written, I still teach. So I'm just on a contract, like one day a week, to teach these classes. And I say to this to the students, this is a, this is a model of the working world. And I have standards and expectations of you that are going to look really scary and frightening, but I'm going to hold you accountable to build the skills this year so that next year when you're not here, you can flourish. So there's no hiding. Like our lectures are actually run like a team meeting with the students being responsible for the schedule and the agenda and interviewing the, interviewing the guests. And so it's really putting the responsibility back on them to say, you've been allowed to be a passenger 
for three years. Um, and now is the time to not do that anymore. Otherwise, you're going to fall off the cliff at the end of this year when you leave here and all of the structure and all of the decision making is removed. And you wake yeah. up on the 1st of December because you graduated yesterday and you've, because I, I use the academic year, right? the calendar year. So they wake up on the 1st of December and they're like, what am I going to do with my life? And they have no, they actually have very poor to no decision-making skills because every decision has been made for them, mm. right? The yeah. band director chooses the curriculum. Like you think about it, every single moment of pretty much of a music student's um, journey someone else has made the decisions for them mm. so you were talking before about building skills I mean like the, the schools of music they all have ensemble programs right I don't know about where you are but um here yeah, they do. yeah, yeah, yeah. there um so there are the university pays people to run those ensembles why mm -hmm. are students not being paid to do that like why is that so they don't need to be adding more curriculum in they could simply say what do we have going on now that could be better used as a training and teaching and learning opportunity for the students? Oh, all of our ensembles could be run by students. Mm. All of our, all of the artistic planning could be done by students. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this stuff, um, there's actually a lot of what goes on now could be done by students with the, and the students being paid paid to do it because there's you know it's a line item in the budget now that they're currently paying for people to do these things. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that could be reconfigured that isn't um, that yeah that doesn't need to be think need to completely um, throw the whole thing out and start again. Yeah, I completely agree. And you're talking about um, the ways that you're teaching now, and so you have this website called NotableValues.com. Um, which I checked out and there's some really great resources on there. Um, you talk about some workshops you're doing on um, some podcast episodes, some of the curriculum that you're talking about presenting and talking with, with folks. So can you talk a little bit about your website and some of the content that's on there? Sure. Um, so my work is I work with individuals. So I work with, I do a lot of coaching work with um, musicians and my specialty is really helping people to, to transition. So either they've got the, they've got a model that isn't working for them anymore and they need to change. And maybe that's changing within music. So, um, you know, maybe they've been like teaching at four different schools um, and they don't want to do that anymore. They want to figure out a way just to teach at one school or they want to do something else. So working with musicians around changing their model either within music or working with musicians who it's not working for them anymore and they want to do something else with their lives. So that's one of my favourite things to do actually is, um, yeah, work with musicians who are like, I've had this job in an orchestra or I've been freelancing and it's just not working for me anymore. It's not working for me artistically. It's not working for me financially and I need to figure out um, another way of having a career that's got meaning that's going to use my skills but that isn't necessarily in music so I coach you know I, I coach people and then I also work with organizations to build um, training and learning programs for them so I work with um, at the moment I'm working with the Melbourne Recital Center here in, in Melbourne and they have 67 chamber music ensembles come through their small hall as part of a series and so I've built a um 
a professional development program for those 67 chamber music ensembles to hook into that's got um, coaching and skill development and um, all sorts of stuff in it. Uh, so that's sort of the work I do is work with, yeah, work with organisations who need to help their people shift from where they are to somewhere else um, and build programs to do that and then work with individuals as a, as a coach. Yeah, and I have a, podcast, a couple of podcasts as well. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's talk about a, a few of those things. So one of the things you offer is a workshop called Listen to Play perform um mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about that workshop and you know what you do with that yeah that is one of my favorite ways to spend three hours <laughs> <laughs> um i'm actually teaching it tomorrow that workshop so um one of the subjects i teach at college is a graduate subject called music outreach and social entrepreneurship and it's for students who are in the masters of orchestral performance stream who are intending to have an orchestral career and understanding that orchestras need players who can work in um, community and education settings, not just on the main stage performances. So I'm actually teaching that class tomorrow, but it's really, it's an experience designed to pair you up um, with a stranger and to give you an opportunity to develop empathy with them um, to practice reflective listening. So often when we're having a conversation with somebody, what's happening in our head is we're not really listening to what they're saying. We're curating our response based on what yeah. we think they're going to say, right? So it's actually, I give them a frame, I give them a framework of how not to do that, how to actually listen and how to um, respond in a way that shows the person that you actually heard what they said um, and because, and it also teaches them how to um, give and receive feedback that is um, emotionally well-regulated because as classical musicians, we have a really weird um, uh, relationship with feedback that most of the, I'm going to use air quotes, which you can't see because we're just talking to each other, but the feedback we receive is actually <laughs> judgment right? It's, um, it's like, oh, no, that B flat was late. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's judgment. And so we often have this very physical and emotional and psychological, like for me, I know if someone says they're going to give me feedback, I'm a bit like a transformer, like the shutters go up and I get ready to be judged and have my worth challenged, right? Yeah. Because the feedback was not actually feedback, it was judgment. And we, a lot of musicians have really internalised that, res, that response to, to feedback. So this workshop actually teaches you, gives you a model to and, and, and you practice it in the workshop of giving and receiving feedback that takes that, um, takes that, takes that out of the equation um, and also allows you to experience listening and working with someone whose values and opinions might be radically different to yours um, without being emotionally engaged or invested in that. So just a chance to like actually really listen and sit and um, understand what the other person needs. So it's based on the design thinking principle of you, um, you work with a partner, you un unpack a problem they have, 
you um, get as much, develop empathy and get as much information about that problem from them as you can. You develop a first iteration solution, you ask them for feedback, you develop a second iteration solution and then get some more feedback and then eventually that's your kind of, um, the, uh, the, the, the solution is, is then what you come up with. So it's really, although it's, it's based on the design thinking methodology, it's really about teaching people, classical musicians, how to have um, healthily, emotionally regulated conversations with someone who has radically different opinions to them. Yeah, and that's that's so great that you're teaching those skill sets as well, because as much as we try to talk about how being a musician is all about music, it's not. You also have to be a person <laughs> and yeah. a human too. Yeah, you got to be able to work with people. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, how are we going to to really meaningfully address these diversity, equity, inclusion issues um, if we can't listen to the people that have been excluded from our work and hear them say, I have been disadvantaged, um, I've been, uh, you know, all these things that is re that is truthfully their experience, how, if we can't, well, that's what we need to be able to do in order to come up with solutions and decide how are we going to be anti-racist, anti-misogynist, um, decolonialize the canon of music of which we play on the main stage of our halls. If we can't listen to the other and hold the tension of their truth, of their experience without trying to defend things, then we're never going to be able to change. So that's actually what this workshop is designed to do is to allow give you a set of tools to listen to someone to say that, that their um, perspective is radically different and might might have felt um, like that you want to get defensive about the choices that you've made um, and, and allow that conversation to unfold and for there to be dialogue between people because that's I feel so strongly that um, that's really what's missing with things like higher education and the orchestra model is that we are we're so defensive about what we've done um the choices that we've made in following this tradition is when other people say but hang on your practices are really um divisive and um uh you know misogynistic and racist the system is that not you as a person the system is that um often we get really defensive and we want to um like step in and counter that instead of being able to say i hear what you were saying yeah, yeah. so unless unless we're able to really truly listen um we're not going to be able to then say well what would better look like yeah yeah, I agree. That's so important. And yeah, those conversations need to be had as well. And speaking of conversation, you also have two different podcasts that are featured on your website. So can you talk a little bit about those two podcasts and what kind of the mission is um, for both of those? Sure. And I'm, I'm about to, um, I'm actually next week starting uh, boot, uh, I'm rebooting one of those that's been on the back burner for a while. Awesome. Um, so, so one of them, it's called the progressatorium because you know we study in the conservatorium of music which is a bit of a problem so it's um discussions with leaders uh, like I mentioned before Brian Pertle at Lawrence University Michael Stepniak at Shenandoah mm -hmm. um leaders of schools of music where they where they have really changed the student experience to be much more future focused and much more 
um, purpose and values driven. So yeah, if anyone's listening and they're sort of interested in this, what is happening at the leading edge of change in music schools, that's a, there's some really great conversations there um, with really nuts and bolts. How do we go about doing it as well? Not just how do we talk about it, but how do we enact the change and how, what did the process look like and how do we evaluate and measure and ensure that we have a, um, a culture of continuous improvement? So that's the Progressatorium is one. And the second one, it's called Beyond the Stage. And it's conversations with people who've either trained to um, an undergraduate degree level in music or even worked as professional performers, like had held jobs in orchestras, who have transitioned and are now thriving in second in in their in like career 2.0 in law and in business um, social enterprise and medicine so we really talk about how did you come about deciding that a life embedded in music as a profession was not right for you and what were the steps you took to change what are the skills that come across with you like how does being um, a collaborative pianist help you being a great barrister. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the Beyond the Stage. And that's the one I'm about to reboot at, um, starting next week, actually, because I think the time is right to be reframing this notion that to leave music is to fail mm. instead of saying I can, I can, so leaving is not failing. Um, I can choose to leave because the system was not working right for me. And and I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to take responsibility and I wanted more of a challenge than it was offering me. Yeah, that's amazing. And I love how your website has so many different resources for folks that need, you know, all these things that we were talking about, these entrepreneurship skills and things. I encourage everybody to check it, check it out. It's called Nope notablevalues.com. <laughs> I almost said note values. Ha! Notablevalues.com. Well, um, so everybody should check that out. <laughs> yes, that was, I did. That was one, yeah, that was one of the puns. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So my last question for you is, you know, we're talking about all these issues in collegiate education and all these things that you are trying to change and you're actually trying to change, which I love because I feel like a lot of times people talk about the issues that are happening currently Mm -hmm. in classical music, but nobody's really acting on it. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, these are all the problems, but okay, well, we'll think about what we're going to do later and then it never happens. (laughs) So I, I really love that you're doing that. So my question for you is, where do you see in, in an ideal world, like where do you see the future of classical music and collegiate education going? Mm. I think uh, in terms of the second part of the question, where do I see collegiate education going? I think there's going to be a consolidation in the market. There are too many schools of music offering um, offering education experiences that are quite lo- quite low in value. Yeah, so I think that students, uh, prospective students are really switched on. They know what a huge investment of time and money it is to undertake a college degree. Um, And their parents are also aware. So I think what I suspect what's going to happen is there'll be market pressure from prospective students and those schools that, you know, where the students are saying, well, what are you doing to prepare me to work in the sector? And that there'll be a consolidation of the schools who refuse to change, just having, you know, dipping enrolment numbers and and having to close. So I suspect that that is what's going to happen and hopefully the fittest will survive. So um, we'll just end up with the 
schools of music that do have a, a an answer to that question of what are you doing to prepare me because you know I'm going to drop two hundred thousand um, dollars in my in my college education so I, I suspect yeah so I suspect a consolidation um, the future I would like to see for classical music is that organization the large organizations take seriously their responsibility to find a way to be necessary in their community. So even beyond relevance, because relevance is, well, who are you relevant to? The people that can afford $90 a ticket. Um, but asking themselves, and particularly, you know, post-COVID and whatever, who knows, we might have another COVID situation in two years' time, mm -hmm. is how do we create musical experiences that make us necessary to the well-being of our community and then therefore how do we get creative in ways in which the financial model of that is going to happen so that it's not always a user pays system so if, if we're for instance an orchestra that um, serves our community that that has a partnership with um, researchers and we can show that our work makes a significant impact on the mental health of teenagers, well, then there's lots of foundation funding, philanthropic funding. Um, you know, there's other creative ways that you can fund, that you can reformat the model, that it's not a user pays model because you are actually being um, focused on service and purpose. Yeah. And then when the next thing happens, we're not stuck because we're in this old model of, oh, if we can't sell 2,000 tickets at $90 a head, we're sunk um, mm -hmm. because we serve a much more, um, we, yeah, we serve a different purpose. So yeah. that's, the, that's the kind of big picture future I'd like to see all of us working towards is how, what is the community in which we operate um, what does it look like and what are their needs and how do we create a solution that makes us necessary in their lives? Yeah, I completely agree. Susan, I want to thank you so much for coming on, for giving us your time, talking a little bit about your life and your experiences and some of the amazing work you're doing. Um, everybody should go check out Susan's work and her website. I'll be sure to tag it in the episode as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cassie, and thank you for making this podcast. It's an incredible resource for our community. So thank you for the work that you are doing and the work you do every day with your students. I think music educators are, um, you guys are like saints. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for, thank you, for um, you know, doing this for others as well. Uh, thank you. I needed that today. So that was, that was good. Thank you for that. <laughs>